Welcome to the Money Hour with host Tina Mitchell and co-host Keelan Harvey. Tina Mitchell, MLO 145420, and Keelan Harvey, MLO 1330075, are licensed loan originators with Highlands Residential Mortgage Limited, NMLS 134871. The views expressed by the speakers on the following program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of Highlands Residential Mortgage Limited, nor are they necessarily endorsed by Highlands Residential Mortgage Limited. Now, in the studio, local mortgage experts, Tina Mitchell and Keelan Harvey. Welcome to the Money Hour and 1150 AM KKNW Saturday, August 7th show. You can also listen to our podcast, Facebook premiere show, or on our YouTube channel. For more information on upcoming events, please go to tinamitchellevents.com. I am your co-host, Keelan Harvey, and as you can see, our host, Tina, is gone today. She has continued education. I missed one of our shows well. We have to keep ourselves up to speed with the latest and greatest in our industry and are required to do some additional uh, continued education credits. So we're rolling solo today, bringing in expert advice and inside knowledge on today's events in our local economy and how they can affect your money. If you're here on our show at a different time or day, you are listening to a rebroadcast, but we are here to answer any questions or connect you with the guests that we have on the show. Please call the show at 1-855-411-50. That's 1-855-411-50 or online at themoneyhour.com and our lineup for today's show. First of all, we have Troy Hunter of the Injury Law Group Northwest. Is your insurance giving you the coverage you need when you need it? And then Sandy Tampa of Windermere Real Estate, the move up by, which is interesting, especially in today's market. And then lastly, but not least by any means, Laura Benjamin of WP Duo, everything you wish you knew about website agencies. Also, if you are watching our show on Facebook premiere uh, or on the YouTube channel, I would like to introduce our engineer at Hubbard Radio Station, Benny, and our director of uh, marketing, Victoria. We cannot do it without them. Uh, Thank you, Benny and Victoria, for everything you do. Great information and great guests in the studio today. For more information on any topics discussed, please forward, please call the show at 855-411-50. That's 1-855-411-50 or online at themoneyhour.com. And now let's start the show as we do every single week with a little bit of money chat. Money. Money. So it's all me today. Uh, So this is exciting because this is going to be a really fun one. This is week two of my new series, and we're talking about banking today and a little bit of history about the banking. So we're going to talk and start with the fractional reserves. So when we think of banks, we think of them as a place where we store our cash, right? Well, when we deposit money into the bank, we aren't just letting the bank hold on to our cash on our behalf. We're actually lending the bank money. Deposits made into the banks are shown as liability on the bank's balance sheet because the bank owes the depositor back the money plus interest on these deposits. The bank then lend out the money that they received in deposits at a higher rate to generate income. But the bank cannot lend out all the money they receive from deposits. They need to keep some of that on hand because people will want to access their money, right? When you want to go pull out cash. So these are called fractional reserves. So banks are also limited to the amount they can lend 
based upon multiple of their assets. This falls under the capital reserve requirement and the leverage ratio. If more cash is needed than the bank has on hand, it can borrow from other banks and the Fed funds rate. Banks can also borrow from the Federal Reserve discount window, but rates are typically higher. Under Dodd-Frank, most banks are typically required to keep 10% of the deposits as reserves. The requirement is set by the Federal Reserve and is one of the central bank's tools to implement monetary policy. Increasing the reserve requirements takes money out of the economy, while decreasing the reserve requirements puts money back into the economy. This system can be vulnerable if too many people decide to grab their money at the same time or if money is transferred into the instruments that banks can't easily leverage. The reserve requirements set by the central bank also play a key role. Before the financial crisis, some large financial institutions had leverage ratios of roughly 50 to 1. This means they had only $1 in capital to protect against every $50 in liabilities. And after the implementation of the Dodd-Frank, this is adjusted to nearly 10 to 1. The first bank of the United States, central banking in the U.S. did not begin the Federal Reserves. The bank of the United States was created in 1791 and was designed by the Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton and modeled after the Bank of England, which is the British Central Bank. The initial charter was for 20 years through 1811 and controlled the money supply by regulating the number of notes the state banks could issue, as well as controlling the transfer of the reserves to different parts of the country. It also served as a depository of the Treasury funds, which also was an important function. It was feared that without Central Bank, the Treasury deposit would be placed in a private commercial banks and influenced by political favoritism. Though considered a successful uh, success by historians, the central bank was met with a lot of controversy, actually. So the farmers were opposed to the bank because they feared it would favor commercial industry over the interests of their own. So there were also concerns that paper currency would promote over gold and silver. Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, might have heard of him, believed the bank was unconstitutional and opposed it as an unauthorized extension of federal power. These concerns led to the charter not being renewed by Congress. Following the end of the central bank, states began, uh, state banks began recklessly and wildly issuing notes. This practice was exasperated by the disruptions associated with the War of 1812, which caused considerable inflation from 1812 to 1815. During this period, prices rose over 13% per year. The crisis led to the creation of another central bank called the Second Bank of the United States. And the Second Bank of the United States was issued a 20-year charter in 1816 with the same responsibilities as the first bank, but like its predecessor, its charter was not renewed. Bank's reach exceeded that of the previous central bank an extensive branch network helped facilitate the country's Western expansion, and these branches provide credit to businesses and farmers, which aided in economic growth. The bank was plagued with problems, though, and including poor management and rampant fraud. Nicholas Biddle, who became the bank's president in 1823, was accused of allowing the bank to make loans to his friends while denying loans to others. Well, not, not cool there, Nicholas Biddle. These actions subjected the bank to the great deal of public criticism. And in 1828, staunch anti-bank candidate Andrew Jackson, might have heard of that guy too, was elected president. In 1832, four years before the bank's charter was set to expire, Congress produced a renewal bill, which Jackson vetoed. No other renewal bill would come through Congress, and the bank's charter would expire in 1836. 
This would be the last attempt at central banking until 1913, when the modern Federal Reserve System was created after the Panic of 1907. Now, picking, speaking of the Panic of 1907, uh, the Panic of 1907 was the first worldwide financial crisis of the 20th century, which brought about an economic contraction only surpassed by the severity of the Great Depression. This crisis spurred the creation of the modern Federal Reserve in 1913. The panic was triggered when two minor speculators, Charles W. Uh, Morse and F. Augustin Hines, attempted to corner the stock of United Copper to try to control the price of copper. They didn't have the funds themselves, so they misappropriated the funds from the bank and caused the bank to become insolvent. Other banks tried to come to their aid, but were then viewed as risky, causing the bank's prices to drop. The New York Stock Exchange, heavily weighted with bank stocks, fell almost 50% from its peak. This spread throughout the country to other banks and trusts. The sharp decline in stock market uh, and concerns about banks' insolvency caused a run to the bank. This occurs when basically everybody and their mother decides to go to the bank at the same time and withdraw all their money because they're freaking out. The panic heightened the liquidity crisis and, and prompted the need for central banking to provide liquidity. Remember the scene at The Wonderful Life when Uncle Billy loses the cash he sent to deposit behalf of the bank. Old movie, may have not seen it, but once everybody heard the rumors of the cash storage, a bank run ensued. George Bailey explained to the crowd that he didn't have all their money in the safe. He said, the money's not here. Your money is at Joe's house and at the Kennedy's house, Miss, Miss Mackin's house and a hundred others. You are lending them the money to build and then they're going to pay it back to you the best they can. Now, fortunately, modern central banking and regulatory practices have essentially eliminated the possibility of a bank run because the central bank can be a source of liquidity so that the banks can fulfill the needs of withdrawals and depositors. Back to the uh, panic of 1907 though, capital become, became scarce and there was an, unwarp, uh, excuse me, an upward spike in the call money uh, interest rate, which is the rate of interest in, on overnight loans collateralized by the stock in the New York Stock Exchange. This served as a signal tightening credit and economic distress. On October 22nd, the annualized rate skyrocketed from 9.5 to 70% and then to 100% in just two days. Insane. Even at those astronomical rents or rates, there were times where no credit was offered. The New York Stock Exchange appeared to be in the brink of seizing up, but managed to remain open because of the extraordinary actions of one single man. And that one single man was JP Morgan. You might have heard of him, now JP Morgan Chase Bank. I don't have time, unfortunately, to get into him. I will a little bit next week. Uh, we'll talk about J.P. Morgan and what he did to kind of pick the banks up and where he went from there. But for this week, that is our money chat. Coming up next on the money hour is your insurance giving you the coverage you need when you need it. Troy Hunter of the Injury Law Group Northwest right here on 1150 AM KKNW. So do you have a business website that you wish you had time to update? Or even worse, you want to update, but your developer wants three weeks and $1,000 to make a simple change? WP Duo puts your site on easy mode. It's like a help desk for your website, designed to help you save time, save money, and eliminate website headaches. They've helped hundreds of small businesses find freedom from the website blues. With unlimited website updates, hosting, 24-7 support, and everything under the hood covered, you can trust WP Duo 
to keep your site going strong. Need something changed? They get it done in a business day or less so that your website finally can move at the speed of your business. Visit WPDuo.com right now to see how WP Duo gets it done for your business. That's WPDuo.com. An alternative to everything else on your radio dial. Alternative Talk 1150. You're listening to The Money Hour with your host, Tina Mitchell, and co-host, Keelan Harvey, on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Now, back to the show with local mortgage experts, Tina Mitchell and Keelan Harvey. You are listening to The Money Hour at 1150 AM KKNW, the Saturday, August 7th show. You can also listen to our podcast, Facebook premiere show, or on our um, YouTube channel. In addition, for this, for excuse me, for additional information on upcoming events, please go to tinamitchellevents.com. I am your co-host technically today, Keelan Harvey. As you know, our uh, host is out. It's a great day to talk about money, and that's what the show is all about, how to make money, save money, so you can build a better quality of life for you and your family. If you're hearing, and this is the slide I was missing earlier, Benny, if you were hearing our show at a different time or day, you are listening to a rebroadcast, but um, we are here to answer any questions or connect with the guests we have on the show today. Please call 1-855-411-50 or online at themoneyhour.com. And now on our show, Troy Hunter of the Injury Law Group Northwest. Is your insurance giving you the coverage you need when you need it right here on 1150 AM KKNW? Troy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Keelan. I'm a pleasure to be here. Well, we are very excited to have you here. We're going to talk about you a little bit here, Troy. Uh, you are an amazing man. So uh, Troy Hunter is a personal injury uh, attorney at Injury Law Group Northwest, located, located in Issaquah, Washington. After graduating from law school at the University of Washington, Troy went to work as an insurance defense attorney. He defended insurance companies for 16 years, litigating all kinds of personal injury claims from car accidents, construction uh, accidents, medical malpractice, and premises liability. But after 16 years, Troy realized he was fighting for the wrong side. Six years ago, ago Troy left insurance defense and opened his firm, Injury Law Group Northwest. Troy now represents people who have been injured or damaged by carelessness and negligence of others, and he feels he has found his purpose. He now uses his 16 years of defense experience against the insurance companies he used to defend. How cool is that? You know every little nook and cranny of the other side for 16 years, and now you're using it for the better, uh, the the betterment of your uh, of your clients. Um, Troy, I want to start out right out of the gate, um, and I actually experienced this myself lately because I didn't update my insurance for the longest time, and my stuff was so outdated. And I'll get into a little bit about that, but let's start with auto insurance. How do you know what you have and if it's enough? Thanks, Keelan. Um, yeah, you should talk to your broker, right? Um, you have a policy, get a copy of the policy, look at it, understand it, talk to your broker so that you know what you have or you know what you don't have. Because to be honest, it's kind of like what you were just talking about with regards to central banks. Insurance companies take money in. They take premiums like deposits. But unlike banks, it's really hard to get your money back out. So um, look at what you have to protect others, your liability to others if, if something is your fault. But what a lot of people don't really look at is protecting themselves. Do you have insurance that protects you if you need it? Yeah, Troy, I think uh, 
and I'm ashamed to even say this, I think my coverage for somebody else was like 25,000, which would like, it would like cover a Kia, maybe no offense to Kia, <laughs> but like heaven forbid I hit a Range Rover or something. I would have been responsible for all of that. Now I have an umbrella policy and everything's updated and I'm actually probably overinsured if there's such a thing, but better safe than sorry. Now, my question to you would be, what is the minimum liability coverage a person has, uh, they have to have in Washington state? Well, you just nailed it on the head, Keelan. The, the minimum is $25,000. Oh, and nice. so, you know, <laughs> it's required to be insured in the state of Washington if you're going to drive. And the minimum you have to have is $25,000 liability insurance, what you would owe to somebody else if you caused an accident. But I can tell you from a lot of experience, over 20 years of experience, $25,000 is not nearly enough to cover even the most basic of accidents because you're not just talking about the property damage of course you're talking about any personal injuries that might flow out of that 25,000 gets eaten up pretty quick and then your own personal assets can be at stake yeah you know it's not about just going to find the least expensive insurance insurance is there for a reason and that's to protect you from the you know heaven forbid you have to use it you're going to hope you had that that policy that protected you and your family and especially your assets the more you own the more is at risk i mean they can take everything from as far as i understand so if considering how can you protect yourself from another driver that that was me at one point that have these low limits <laughs> and, and, and maybe even no insurance coverage at all. I've never been that guy. I think that's one lower, but how do you Good. protect yourself, Troy? Yeah, well, there's UIM coverage, underinsured motorist coverage, and then there's PIP, personal injury protection. Ooh. Those two acronyms, UIM and PIP, are extremely important to protecting yourself. And really, most people don't even know that those exist or they should have them. UIM insurance is for that driver that is underinsured, they only have 25,000 limits, or that is uninsured, they just aren't responsible enough to have insurance at all. Then if they cause an accident and cause you injury, your UIM coverage pays you for your damages. So if you have $100,000 in UIM limits, you have $100,000 available to you to compensate you for your injuries and damages, including things like lost wages, property damage, any other damages that you might have that flow out of that accident. PIP coverage, personal injury protection, is the medical aspect of it. So it's separate from the other damages. So if you get in an accident, the other driver has no insurance, you have PIP coverage that immediately starts paying for your medical care. If you're transported to the emergency room that day, your PIP coverage will pay those bills from day one. That's huge. And that stuff adds up. You know, I mean, you just mentioned a few things there that a lot of people probably wouldn't think about. Lost wages, even the tr transportation, you know, getting in an ambulance. There's a lot of money. Those, those uh, medical bills can stack up for sure. In your opinion, what do you think is kind of the, I mean, what would you say on how much coverage somebody should, should have? So for that medical aspect, um, you can have 10,000 is the minimum for PIP coverage. Mm -hmm. But believe me, again, that $10,000, if you go to the emergency room, if you have to have an MRI, heaven forbid, you have to have any kind of surgery, that $10,000 goes by really fast. So 35,000 is what, you know, I recommend to clients that they make sure that they have, then you're looking at having sufficient coverage. Now, if you have health insurance, that's going to kick in after the PIP coverage is exhausted. So you're 
not mm. unprotected if you have health insurance, but I think you want a good healthy PIP policy in place. On the UIM, again, it depends on your risk assessment, right? It depends mm -hmm. what your income is. If you've got a, if you're a high earner and you get in an accident and you can't bring in that income, how much is enough to cover that? 50,000, 100,000, 150,000? What is your income and what are your debt obligations? That's what you want to take into consideration in looking at what your limits ought to be. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's a moving target, right? I mean, and it's good to update that. I, I made the biggest mistake. Unfortunately, I did this a while ago, but just letting it go for so long and really not reevaluating your situation and making sure that you're covered. I mean, insurance as a foundational for financial planning is huge. So if I was to get into a car accident and it's the other driver's fault, their insurance will, will not pay for my medical bills is what you're saying. That is exactly right. Even if it's a clear-cut liability accident, you're rear-ended by somebody, mm -hmm. and that's clearly their fault. And you go to the emergency room, you get some treatment, you contact their insurance company and say, hey, here's my bills I'm treating. It's clearly your fault. Pay these bills. They're not going to do it. You have to pay for your bills first. That's why it's great to have PIP coverage that will immediately kick in. If you have health insurance, it'll pay for it. Medicare, Medicaid, that'll pay for it. But you have to pay first. Then when you're done treating, when your treatment is over, when you've recovered from your injuries, then you have to make a claim. You make a claim to that insurance company and say, hey, here's all my bills. Here's how much this all cost me. Are you going to compensate me? And whether they will or whether they won't is an open question. Yeah, that's scary stuff right there. So could you uh, dive into a little bit more detail about how the how my personal health insurance will factor into the bigger picture here? Absolutely. They're going to take a backseat as much as they can. So if you have PIP coverage, they're going to let PIP coverage pay until it's exhausted. They're not going to pay a dollar until your PIP insurance is exhausted. Then they're going to want to know, is somebody else liable for these injuries? They will start paying for your treatment at that point, but they're going to want to recover out of any settlement that you get, any and all money that your insurance is paying for your care and treatment. And that's something that most people really just don't know. If, mm -hmm. if their insurance company is paying, they're going to want to get paid back. That makes sense. But you're right. Most people probably don't think about that. My wife got into an accident, unfortunately, and she didn't see any money from anything for years, too. I mean, the process takes a long time, possibly. Now, a question for you, Troy. So if I settle an auto injury claim with an insurance company, do I get to keep the money? Because I know a lot of people think that, oh, you know, I'm going to get rich and all this stuff. Uh, <laughs> do, do I get to keep the money? How does that work? Yeah, and insurance companies take advantage of that ignorance, believe me. Um, mm -hmm. they will send you a letter saying, Hey, we understand you've had an accident with our insured. You had some treatment, you had some, you know, pain, a couple of days off work. Tell you what, we'll send you $5,000 to compensate you for being involved in this accident. We're really sorry. Just sign this release and we'll send you a check. If you do that, like I said, most people don't understand they have to repay their PIP. They have to repay their health insurance. They have to pay back the insurance that is paid for their care and treatment. And the other insurance company isn't going to tell you that. They're not going to make that clear. So you might get a check for $5,000, but you might owe it to pay back all of the medical that's already been paid. Wow. 
If anybody's listening out there um, and this is striking a nerve, the moral of the story is to call Troy and somebody that's <laughs> an expert at it and that can navigate all of this for you. Because if you're on your own, there are professionals, they know what they're doing and you're probably not going to end up in the best situation without somebody like Troy, who's got your back to navigate this for you. Um, how would I go about, let's say I do stack up a whole bunch of medical bills, Troy, how do I, uh, how would I go about repaying for these medical bills? So if you get an attorney involved is the best way to do it, as you said, Keelan, um, and it doesn't have to be me. I'm happy to take any calls, but you know, just find somebody and talk to them and find out what you don't know. Um, get an attorney involved. They can corral all those bills. They can actually negotiate reduction of some of those the PIP or the health insurance, they're going to be asking for every dollar that they paid for. But if you negotiate with them and say, hey, we're only going to be able to get this much on a settlement recovery. How about you take 50 cents on the dollar? We can negotiate some of that. So more money ends up in your pocket. Wow. Um, well, we are down to one minute, Troy. Um, I wanted to know, though, before I go, there's one more that I think is on everybody's mind, including mine. Uh, how much does a personal injury attorney cost typically? Because everybody always wants to know, what does it cost me? Um, but I'm sure it costs you a lot more without one. So what does it cost? <laughs> yeah, that is a big fear. A lot of people don't even call an attorney to ask any questions because they think, well, it's going to cost me too much to even call. Here's the thing to remember, personal injury attorneys like myself, we don't get paid unless and until you get paid, okay? So to call me and talk to me about your incident, free. To have a consultation with me, free. To retain me to represent you in a claim or an accident, free. The only time I get paid is when I get money for you. And then that is typically on a one-third contingency fee basis. So. It doesn't hurt to call. It doesn't hurt to ask questions. Find out what you don't know. Protect yourself. Wow, that's extremely transparent, Troy. I appreciate that. Did you hear that, listeners? Free, free, free. He gets paid after the fact when he does the services for you and protects you and your family. So definitely, by all means, reach out to somebody, preferably Troy, because we, we like him. He's our, uh, he's our expert on here. So uh, with that being said, Troy, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you, Keelan. Really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, coming up next on the Money Hour, the move up by Sandy Tampa of Windermere Real Estate right here on 1150 AM KKNW. Have something important to say? Want to help improve our world? Need to promote your business uniquely and effectively? KKNW is the answer. Our staff helps broadcasters and podcasters create professional-sounding audio. Bring your talent and let our experts help you craft a radio show or podcast that best delivers your message. Learn more at 1150kknw.com. That's 1150kknw.com. KKNW, talk variety that's live and local. Seattle, Tacoma, Antwerp? That's right. We're streamed worldwide on our app and on the web at 1150kknw.com. You're listening to The Money Hour with your host, Tina Mitchell, and co-host, Keelan Harvey, on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Now, back to the show with local mortgage experts, Tina Mitchell and Keelan Harvey. 
You are listening to The Money Hour on 1150 AM KKNW, the Saturday, August 7th show. You can also listen to our podcast, Facebook premiere show, or on our show YouTube channel. For additional information on upcoming events, please go to tinamitchellevents.com. I am your co-host today, Roland Solo, Keelan Harvey. We are here to help you build a strong foundational blueprint one week and one show at a time. Didn't pick the best day to lose my speech today. So if you're hearing the show at a different time or day, you are listening to a rebroadcast, but we are here to answer any questions or connect you with the guests we have on the show today. Please call the show at 1-855-411-50. Again, that is 1-855-411-50 or online at themoneyhour.com. And now in studio, uh, Sandy Tampa, Windermere Real Estate, the move up by um, right here on 1150 AM KKNW. Thank you so much, Sandy, for bearing with me too with my uh, my speech issues today while I'm running the, the show solo. Um, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Keelan. You're doing great. It's, it's hard. It's so I'm hard. Doing, I'm doing my best. I really am. So before we get into it, I do want to talk about you a little bit, Sandy. So... Um, Sandy is a skilled veteran with 15 years of residential real estate experience. She is based out of Bellevue and primarily focuses on the east side. I love the east side as well. I am from, went from Seattle to the east, and uh, I agree with you. Whoop, whoop, east side. Uh, Sandy's highly accredited managing broker. Her credentials include accredited buyer's representative, certified residential specialist, and master certified negotiating expert. What does this mean to you? It means she is dedicated to being the best she can be to serve you and your referrals with the highest level of professionalism and skill possible. Way to go, uh, Sandy. So let's get into let's get into the nitty gritty here. So, uh, what are the options for an owner who wants to move up uh, or move down? Um, to buy in a in a contingent, maybe sell then buy or buy then sell situation. Well, yeah, exactly. Those are those are the three basic options. So, with what's happening right now is a, a lot of sellers have a ton of equity in their home, and with interest rates being so low. In fact, what are in, interest rates are lower than the start of the year, aren't they, Keelan? Yeah, I'm, unfortunately, we get in trouble if we state rates, but oh. I would say that's okay. Not your fault. They're just really picky about how we state it, but um, I would say we're in good shape. That's the best I could do for you, and you are correct. Okay, right on. <laughs> Got it. So, so it's a great time not only to sell your house, but also to buy a house, and so a lot of people, the, I call it the move up buy, but sometimes you are moving down, like you said, Yeah. and it's, it's overwhelming to think, especially if you need that equity or you want to use that equity in your next purchase. Mm -hmm. So with that, there's, there are three basic options. There's something that we call the contingent option. There's where you could buy before you sell or you can sell before you buy. With contingent, that's what everybody's kind of dream scenario is where they, because there's really, in theory, on paper, it looks like there's no risk. So buying contingent means that you're, you make an offer contingent upon you finding a buyer for your home. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like a dream, but it's really tricky. First yeah. of all, you have to get your house on the market within five business days. Mm -hmm. And most people, that's, I mean, 
in this market, yeah, you can put a sign in the yard and sell, but if you want to maximize those dollars so you can maximize your purchase price, you probably have about four to six weeks of work ahead of you realistically. Um, and then when you buy contingent, you lose all your other negotiating power. Mm-hmm. So that is kind of your one one shot of negotiating, so to speak. And in this market, well, that's another. So if you're lucky enough to get it to contingent offer, and then with a contingent offer, you might get bumped. What that mm-hmm. means is another buyer might come in and knock you out of position. And if you get, and with that, you, you have to fish or cut bait, which means that you have to either walk away or you waive all of your contingencies, including your financing contingency. And that can be really, really risky. And then if you do decide to, to walk away, you probably already have your house in the market. Maybe you're talking to another buyer and then that was the only house you were gonna buy. Cause right now buying is harder than selling. So you might be kind of in a bad position. So it's, it's something that I think everybody thinks is their dream scenario. And at the end of the day, it's very rare for a contingent offer to get accepted, at least in our marketplace. If something's been on the market for several weeks, maybe that's mm-hmm. the case. Or if you're buying out of area, I don't, you know, we'd need to talk to that, your buyer agent over there. Yeah, because that might be a different market because, of, yeah, I, I haven't seen a contingent offer in a long time, unfortunately, because there's just inventory so low. There's so many people out there buying houses. They, unfortunately, you know, fortunately for the sellers, they have options. So putting that all together is more risk for them, right, in, in having this all come together. And at the end of the day, their goal is to sell the house. So um, it works out great for you, uh, you know, maybe not so great for them, but they happen and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an option. So uh, what do you feel like are the biggest pitfalls of this contingent purchase in your opinion, Sandy? Yeah, so the contingent purchase, and again, I, I don't, I, I'm making it sound like it's, it's a viable option. And really, I would say you've got a one to 2% chance of a contingent offer being accepted. So I think that's probably our biggest pitfall. And then the second is just um, giving up all your negotiating power and then getting bumped. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, the next option, which is probably just a level up from that, would be um, to sell and then buy. What are the downsides to sell and then buy? Right. So so then if you're not going to do contingent, then you've got the two options of sell, then buy, or buy, then sell. And Mm -hmm. so it's kind of the lesser of the two evils. If you sell, then buy, um, that's frankly the most prudent because you know exactly what you're going to net from your house. There's no, there's no mystery there. You, you, it's the least amount of risk because you're not going to own two homes at one time. But the risk is being, I, I say jokingly, that you're homeless, but, which isn't true, but <laughs> yeah. you, know, you, you are home ownership-less. So you might have to do a bunny hop. So that means you might have to have temporary housing to bridge the gap between the two. In this market, you are some some sellers can negotiate a rent back, which means so close date is the date that the home conveys from the seller's name to the buyer's name. And Mm -hmm. then possession date is the date that the seller has to move out. And you can have a delayed possession up to 59 days if they're doing conventional financing, what is allowed. Yeah. Um, so that's an option, but you know, you could you could limit your buyer pool by requesting that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, which is, you know, the smaller your buyer pool, the less money you might net. 
So there's some risk there. And this market's hard. It's hard to be a buyer. And can you find a house within those 59 days? And does it, it means find a house and then close on a house without that interim move. Yeah, we, I mean, we do this all the time. And, and one thing people don't realize is you can kind of stagger these transactions. Sometimes when the cash to close comes in, we'll have escrow to escrow, wire money right over on buying a new house. So you could really stagger these transactions to a degree pretty close um, uh, as well. So let's, what about the uh, upsides to sell them by? Yeah, so that's, you know, what you just said about staggering. That's, that's the perfect case scenario, right? So yeah. where... What you're talking about is where you you close on the sale of your purchase on on Wednesday, and then the funds wire to your next escrow, and you close on that on Thursday. Concurrent closings is a little tricky, but then and maybe you have where you can stay in the house one or two days in a perfect world, and that's always what we try to time for. But you know, life doesn't always work that well. You always need a plan B, right? Yes. So, um, so the upside to selling before you buy is just knowing what what you're going to net in in um, not owning two homes. So it's financially prudent. Yeah, I love that part of it too, Sandy, because when I know exactly what my people have, I can come up with some very specific options, a lot more clarity in the process. Uh, so everybody gets a little bit more comfortable, but it is tricky. You're right. There's a lot of moving parts that are out of your control as, a, as an agent and my control as a lender. So I couldn't agree more. Um, how about the old buy then sell uh, scenario? Yeah, so um, the buy then sell, and I've got a lot of clients doing this right now, and it's when your home is worth um, something that you're very comfortable with, and it's where you are able to, because right now buying is the tricky part, right? Mm-hmm. So we would get your house ready to sell, have it kind of ready to go, have a plan together, and then when that right house comes on, you, you pull the trigger and buy it. So what you do, and, and maybe we can get your house on the market quick enough and we can coordinate those timings like you talked about. But if we can't, then you own two homes at the same time, the new purchase and then your current house. Yeah, and, and the main thing on our side, as far as the lending is, we gotta make sure that you can, of course, qualify for both carrying both those mortgage because they both count against your debt to income ratio which oftentimes, I mean, technically you can go up to 49% on a high balance or conventional loan, depending on how your debt's held. And a lot of times people don't want to, we're all very much about making sure we're within your budget and your comfort level. We don't want you to be house broke. So oftentimes people are well below that and it, and it could present itself as not an issue, but we just got to make sure we got our checks and balances. Uh, what are the upsides of a buy then, and uh, buy then sell? Yeah, um, let's talk a little bit about what you were just saying. So it's qualifying, and then it's also funds, right? You you need funds. And with the qualifying, what's really interesting, Windermere offers two programs that are super, at least Windermere East, not Mm -hmm. East Inc. Um, We offer a a Windermere Ready program. I'll talk about that in a second. But Windermere as a whole offers a Windermere Bridge Loan that allows you to access some equity in your home that doesn't account doesn't count towards your debt to income ratio because no payments are due until the end until you close. And then Windermere also offers a Windermere Ready program that allows it's basically um, an interest free loan that allows you to do like paint and carpet and staging and really do all those things. So 
when you do the buy sell, you typically are pretty strapped for cash. So it's cash qualifying and then risk. So. And I should say too, we do have a, I should have said this beginning with Sandy. We have a bridge loan too, and we have a $75,000 escrow holdback as well. Um, so, I mean, that's a lot of money for an escrow holdback. It's a huge chunk of change and uh, pretty cool. So how that actually works, and I won't go crazy here because I want this to be about your time, is basically you would close the, we'd close a loan like a normal close. And then there's a time frame after the, after the fact that you'd spend that $75,000 after you've already closed on it. It's pretty cool. Um, but the point is Sandy's got tools and I have tools and, you know, not our first rodeo, there's solutions for you no matter what. So call Sandy and chat about that and make sure that you're not, sometimes people just try to invent it on their own. When the reality is you have a pro like Sandy here who can, who's done it a, a ton of times and can put it all together for you. So, um, now down to one minute, uh, let's talk a little bit about the downsides of buy and sell. Sure. Yeah. The, um, the, the downsides to buy and sell is if the market shifts while you're in, like between your purchase and your sale, right? So you mm -hmm. buy and then a bunch of inventory comes on, interest rates go up, that's going to change buyer dynamic. So you could be caught in a situation where the, the, the price we thought you could sell your home for is less. And so that's, and, and maybe it takes longer and your carrying costs are longer there. I think the long and the short of it, if you're considering doing a move up buy or a move down buy, is to it's 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 a lot of moving parts, like you said, yeah. and just start gathering facts. Talk to talk to your lender, talk to a realtor, start getting those facts, and you can break it down into bite-sized pieces. You are so right, Sandy. You know, I mean, you don't know what you don't know. So if you get all the facts and there's never two situations alike, as you know. Um, so it's about what's right for you and what you're comfortable with. And that's why you have a pro like Sandy to help you. Uh, Sandy, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It was awesome. Really good information. Very pertinent to the market right now. Thank you so much. Coming up next on the Money Hour, everything you wish you knew about website agencies. Laura Benjamin of WP Duo, right here on 11:50 a.m. KKNW. So, do you have a business website that you wish you had time to update? Or even worse, you want to update, but your developer wants three weeks and $1,000 to make a simple change? WP Duo puts your site on easy mode. It's like a help desk for your website, designed to help you save time, save money, and eliminate website headaches. They've helped hundreds of small businesses find freedom from the website blues. With unlimited website updates, hosting, 24-7 support, and everything under the hood covered, you can trust WP Duo to keep your site going strong. Need something changed? They get it done in a business day or less so that your website finally can move at the speed of your business. Visit WPDuo.com right now to see how WP Duo gets it done for your business. That's WPDuo.com. Tell your friends about Alternative Talk 1150. You're listening to The Money Hour with your host, Tina Mitchell, and co-host, Keelan Harvey, on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Now, back to the show with local mortgage experts, Tina Mitchell and Keelan Harvey. 
I love it, Laura. You're bobbing your head to the music. Me and Tina do that all the time, and I, we got a guest that's doing it now. I appreciate that. Um, you are listening to The Money Hour on 1150 AM KKNW, the Saturday, August 7th show. You can also listen to our podcast, Facebook premiere show, or on our show YouTube channel. For additional information on upcoming events, please go to tinamitchellevents.com. Our host today, Tina, she's out, but I'm standing in, and uh, we're having a good time here on The Money Hour. Um, and as in me, as in your co-host here, Keelan Harvey. Um, we bring into studio each week the best of the best experts in our local market on everything money. I'm here to help you in today's economy. And now we have Laura Benjamin of WP Duo, everything you wish you knew about website agencies right here on 1150 AM KKNW. Laura, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Kim. You're doing great. <laughs> Oh, thank you. I'm doing my best. You know, I've, this is actually the second time I've ran it on my own. And um, I give Tina her credit. It's not easy. So, but let's talk about you. So Laura's the owner of WP Duo and Laura Benjamin LLC. She's been working professionally to develop brands and design websites since 2003, during which time she has been honored with numerous industry awards. Uh, when she isn't working with her team to deliver great website service or consulting with clients on building their brand marketing system, she spends time with her family playing games and working on home improvement projects. I could completely sympathize with that, Laura. Oh, yeah. So starting right out of the gate, why do you recommend WordPress for a website? Yeah. So one of the things we see from a lot of agencies, especially small market or local agencies, is that they build on their own platforms. They've got something that they've been building up for years and years. And part of that is a strategy that they use to try to keep you as sort of a captive um, member of their, of their client list. So if you ever want someone else to work on that website, it becomes very hard for someone to do that. WordPress, we love WordPress because it is open source. It is your own website, you own it. It's portable, so you can take it anywhere you want. You can have anyone else work on it. And these, these local market firms that can't keep you hostage, or if you're using some of those like DIY website tools as well, things like Squarespace or uh, Wix, those, those, are, those are great for starting out, but as soon as you wanna do something a little bit more custom, you really can't do that, that same level that you can do on WordPress. I love you mentioning that specifically because, you know, trying to do a website, there's so much information coming at us and so many different tools and it just keeps growing and growing. So as a professional like yourself, finding out what is the best really helps everybody. Um, so why would anyone hire a team to manage their website when you could go on a, a Squarespace and do an at-home, you know, kind of website per se? Yeah, great question. So we used to be an agency, just like a lot of these other ones. We've always been a WordPress shop, but the reason that we pivoted into really working into in website management is that we found that a lot of business owners don't have time to deal with the ins and outs of their website. Um, their time is better spent running their business. They can't remember how to do a lot of those things. WordPress is pretty robust, so it's hard to break your website if you've got something on WordPress. But ultimately, like it's up to you and your like how how efficient you can be as an entrepreneur to be focusing on those things where you excel the best. And when you have a website management service, and we're not the only one out there, but when you have a service that's between an agency that maybe doesn't have time for you and a bare bones hosting or DIY solution, you've got someone that can just really quickly in and out, keep pace with your business and your website updates, that can be a tremendous value to your organization. 
Heck yeah. Me and Tina always say, hire out your weaknesses. And maybe it's not your weakness, but it's definitely not your expertise. So why wouldn't you get a professional uh, such as Laura that knows everything about it and can get out there and design something that is useful? And uh, also think about the time you would save. We don't got time to be designing websites. And speaking of, that leads me to my next question, is why is updating a website so expensive? Because it can be costly. And why does it take so long? That's a great question. And again, why we why we moved out of that agency model, because agency models are dependent on a, a project price per update model. So instead of being able to just really quickly get something in and out the door, a lot of these agencies are designed to try to look for the maximum revenue they can make. They're not always looking at the best interest or the, the value that it makes for the business. They're thinking about their bottom line. And so for them, uh, they look at a, at a project that should be something that takes an hour or maybe two hours to get done for most, most people. And they say, well, how do we turn that into a four-hour project or a six-hour project? And how do we maximize the amount we're charging for it? How do we have a bunch of meetings kind of leading in? And they're, they're not necessarily built to be responsive. They have to spend a lot of time filtering that in among these huge projects that they're trying to get done. So that's, that's why it tends to take a long time is it just sort of falls to the bottom of the to-do list. And they're not built to manage things in a responsive way. Yeah, that's not cool. They're just kind of adding hours on there, making it more complicated than it needs to be. That doesn't sound like a fun gig for anybody. Um, and not everyone, but a lot of their models do depend on that. So even though it sounds a little unscrupulous, I think that there's still that tendency where people will stretch things out longer than they really need to. It happens in our business too. I won't name names, but there's big companies out there that make their money on origination fees. It's like a whole different thing than even yeah. processing and underwriting your loans. So, you know, there's that piece that they make just because they're big and that's how they work. So uh, not cool. Um, obviously a website is not just there to, as like a business card, you really need a website for a purpose. So how should businesses be using their website in your opinion? I always think of the website as sort of your online hub for your marketing. It's something that should be performing yeah. a vital business function. It either replaces something that your business does um, that people maybe are normally doing and then they're freed up then to do other things, or maybe it serves a part of your sales funnel. So this could be things like lead generation or serving as a direct response piece for your marketing. It could be a way that customers come on your site and stay up to date. Uh, it could be a great repository for your content. If you're, if you're able to create small pieces of content or blog every week, that can be tremendous value to your customers and they keep coming back. It could be a sales portal. It can be used for appointment setting without anyone ever having to answer a phone or answer an email. There are a lot of ways that small businesses can use their websites that sometimes they haven't even thought of beyond that brochure model. I love that, Laura. Did you hear that? There is a purpose behind it. She's talking about sales, you know, funnels and, you know, and nowadays I heard we have less of a, um, what is it, attention span of a goldfish. So it's about the efficiency of that, getting people on there and bringing them to action, not just like, oh, look at us. Cause a lot of times when you do that, people are just going to move on because they don't even know what to do uh, on your webpage. So everything you said there was about action and a reason for having your website, not just kind of a look at us, we're cool, we have a picture, you know? If your website um, isn't doing something for your business, what's the point of having one? Exactly, exactly. What are, and I'm sure you see this, you know, obviously you see a ton of this stuff. What is the biggest mistake that you see with uh, business websites? 
yeah, all the time I see people not keeping it up to date. Maybe it's been two or three years since their last update. And that doesn't have to be a big update, but sometimes just making sure that like your homepage is refreshed in some way from month to month. You've got your most current specials up there. You've got events that are accurate. I, I was having a conversation the other day with a business owner that was frustrated with uh, one of the vendors that she was trying to hire. And she said, well, I want to go look for this event on their website, but of course nothing was up to date. So I had to pick up the phone and that was frustrating for me. And now I wonder if they're even up to date on all this other stuff. And so these are the kinds of things that cascade into bigger problems for a business and they may be realized. So keeping it up to date, uh, making sure that you're leading with good marketing copy and not just sort of like putting your features out there, but really sharing the benefits that you have for a specific audience and then having good calls to action so you can actually get the results that you want out of your website. That's great information. In your opinion, uh, Laura, how often should a business update their website? So most businesses can get away with maybe bi-weekly to monthly. Again, this is depending on a little bit of their strategy, but oftentimes it's company information, events, posts that they might put in their blog. Content is the thing that gets people to come back to a website. A lot of people that I work with will, will come to me and say, well, you know, it started great and we got a ton of traffic and then it sort of just petered out. And I say, well, what updates did you put out there to keep people coming back? Because everyone's done this, right? You redesign a website, you launch it, you see this big spike in traffic, and then suddenly like three months go by and it goes down a little, three months more go by and it goes down a little. And the reason being, people like fresh things, they like to be kept up to date. So if you keep that cycle going about every two or three weeks, you've got a lot of good fresh content in the pipeline, people will keep coming back. That makes a lot of sense to me. I would be shocked if people update their website once a year, you know, it's just kind of like, oh, we did that. And we're just going to leave it that, there. Yeah. yeah, that's huge. Listen to that. Change, change, update your website, keep it up to speed. Uh, what kind of updates do you typically recommend for your customers? Yeah, so just like I said, uh, blog posts, um, other informational changes about their business. Uh, maybe you want to add new pages as your services grow or change. Um, whatever fresh or new, even search optimized content, Google loves that stuff because they continually re-index your site based on, you know, new terms and signals that they pick up about your business. Interesting. Yeah, we didn't even didn't even think about that side of it. Uh, that's a whole different thing. It is. <laughs> Yeah, and we can, uh, and we'll have you back on the show. Maybe we talk about that next time because that's a whole nother thing. Um, so we are down to one minute. So my last question would be: Do I need to redesign my website every few years? We see that a lot too, where people, again, have not kept their website up to date. It's been five or six years and they just look at it and say, gosh, this looks like how we looked back in 2014, which of course no one looks like they, you know, no one has the same business today that they had in 2014. But here's the thing, if you keep that website up to date every month or two, um, that, that website will last seven plus years or even longer. You don't have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars redesigning this website. It's something that if you keep these small pieces up to date, make small additions over time, in seven years, you look at that website and go, gosh, it's still a great website. It's still up to date. We don't have to do a, a full on rebuild. We can just keep adding on and making this better and better for our business and for our customers. I love that. So if you do it right from the beginning with Laura and it's what it should be, it should actually save you money because you're not trying to reinvent your website all the time. You've done it right from the beginning and now you only need pieces rather than a brand new website. So that is great advice exactly. for everybody out there listening. Laura, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's so nice to have you. Thanks, Keelan. It was great to be here. 
Well, this is your co-host, Keelan Harvey, uh, your local mortgage, mortgage expert, signing off for the day. Enjoy your Saturday, and we look forward to talking more money with you next weekend right here on 1150 AM KKNW. Goodbye, and we'll see you next week. Tina Mitchell, MLO 145420, and Keelan Harvey, MLO 1330075, are licensed loan originators with Highlands Residential Mortgage Limited, NMLS 134871. The views expressed by the speakers on the preceding program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of Highlands Residential Mortgage Limited, nor are they necessarily endorsed by Highlands Residential Mortgage Limited.